I get very frustrated because all the conversation out there around zone two is based on male bodies and male data. Women have more slow twitch type one fibers, which are oxidative fibers. We already have greater mitochondrial density than men. You're listening to the High Performance Health Podcast, helping you optimize your health, performance, and longevity. My name is Angela Foster, and I'm a former corporate lawyer and high performance health coach. Each week, I bring you cutting edge biohacks, inspiring insights, and high performance habits to unlock optimal health, performance, and longevity. So excited that you've chosen to join me today. Now let's dive in. Hi friends, welcome to 2024. It is great to be back on the show. I hope you're returning from the holiday season with renewed vitality and energy ready to crush your 2024 goals. It's great to be back and I'm feeling excited and it's a great time to be focusing on fitness. In fact, many of us have goals around fitness that we kind of have renewed energy for at the start of the new year. And so I'm super excited to welcome back to the show the amazing Dr. Stacey Sims, multiple times best-selling author of Raw and Next Level, and Women Are Not Small Men TEDx talk that she did. In this episode, Stacey and I dive into the hype around a zone true training and why that's based on research on men. We talk about the sex differences and how women differ and why as a woman this should not be your main area of training focus. We also talk about the pitfalls of high intensity interval training and how to do it properly the right nutrition for happy hormones, and changes in both metabolism and the microbiome during perimenopause and beyond. We also talk essentially how you can really optimize for both hormonal health and longevity as a woman. So grab your notepad and pen and get ready to take some notes. This episode is jam-packed with nuggets. So Stacey, I am so excited to have you back on the show. We have done two episodes previously, which have been hugely popular. Um, A lot has changed, I think, from our conversation offline since then uh, in terms of updated science, which I'm really excited to dive into today. So welcome to the show. Welcome back. Thank you. I'm excited to chat again. It's always fun. It's always fun. Um, So we have, let's start off, what's been happening? Because I know you have a revised edition of Raw, the original book coming out in the new year. Give us a quick update on everything that's been going on. Um, With regards to the book, I mean, science evolves. And so what we wanted to do is put out a second edition with that evolved science, where we are looking at things like wearables. Are they appropriate? Are they not? How do we use them? Um, We expanded a bit more on puberty and pregnancy. We have a big section on menstrual cycle tracking, like why should you do it? How do you do it? What if I'm on an oral contraceptive pill or an IUD? What are some of the things to look out for? Uh, Being a bit more practical and not so high performance oriented. Awesome. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. Um, So let's start with, I think, a good place to start is kind of the crossover point because we were just talking about that. Yeah. So many people have been optimizing around the menstrual cycle. I think you make a very good point that we can perform at any time. This is really in relation to our training. But then you and I were just chatting about the fact that I'm 48, clearly perimenopausal, but still have a menstrual cycle. For those women that are listening that fall within that category, they're kind of coming out the other side. How should they be approaching exercise Uh, And kind of before we get to what's going to come ahead and they're navigating those years when they still have a menstrual cycle, but are within those perimenopausal years. Yeah, because perimenopause is very strange because people who aren't aware, they're like, well, I still have my cycle and it's pretty regular. So, you know, nothing's wrong. But we want to look at um, bleed patterns and bleed pattern changes, perhaps. You might start seeing that um, instead of bleeding for five or six days, all of a sudden it's two days and then spotting and another two days. So there's inherent changes within the bleed pattern. So that indicates you're getting really close to menopause itself. But before you start seeing that, before you start seeing changes in your actual menstrual cycle length and stuff, you'll see uh, you might not be adapting as well to training. You might have issues with sleep, uh, mood, irritability, what are some of the other things that we really start having some GI issues? Joint pain is another one that really comes into play, soft tissue injuries. So they're all things where people are like, well, why are my joints sore? Oh, you know, I must have stepped down wrong or something like that. But it's really when we look at the average time when the hormones start to fluctuate and change is really in the early to mid 40s. 
And that's when we really should start taking an eye to how are we changing our training so that we can keep working with our bodies as these hormone changes occur. So that when we actually hit that one point in time menopause and into postmenopause, we're already used to those changes in our training. We're already got the mobility. We know how to lift heavy. We know what sprinting is because the body is going through so many different changes and it's under such a lot of stress. You want to preempt it by starting earlier in the piece. And it's not like completely abandoning everything that you've been doing, but it's really putting more of an eye into the quality, taking less of the volume out, putting more recovery in. And a lot of women who start doing that, even though they feel like they're okay and they're not fully in perimenopause, really start to see improvements in mood, sleep, body composition, energy levels. And those are all good things. Mm. Yeah, they are. I've noticed that recovery piece, actually. Um, I have noticed that coming up more and more and just the need to focus on it. And actually, when I do, I have a better time of things. Um, But it's difficult, I think, like many people, you know, I I suppose exercise in the morning is my go-to. I think it is for many people. And it can be hard for you. (laughs) (laughs) It's the thing, right? It's the best way, I think, to start the day. So I really struggle to get to that point where I'm like, okay, I'm going to do less today because I know it needs to be a mobility day or that just feels like it feels boring do you know what I mean and I don't get that mental kick because I don't know about you but one of the reasons I do it uh is that it just creates order in my brain that my day just goes better and I actually find that lifting weights is the best way to create that yeah you can only lift so many days of the week right (laughs) yeah and without overdoing it yeah so like I know that when I get highly stressed and travel a lot that I tend to revert back to my cardio days being you know ex-iron person, ex-bike racer, that kind of stuff. And I just fall into, I want to get up, I want to get outside, get into steady state. And I know that's absolutely not the right thing for my body. And I've done a lot of traveling this year. So I've kind of fallen into that. So I kind of took a step back and it's like, okay, first of November, I'm going to limit any kind of cardiovascular work to either just sprints or no more than 30 minutes of moderate intensity, whatever day I do. And the rest of it is just focusing on lifting. Because I know that from a step point of view, I have lost a lot of strength in hip extension. I've lost a lot of strength in the ability to um, like run upstairs and that kind of stuff. So the whole month of November, I'm taking this block and I'm just focusing on building that strength. So when people get into this and it's like, I want to get up early and I can want to get out. I want to get some air, that kind of stuff. And you can only lift so many days a week. It's when you have that focus and go, okay, what am I doing this month? What am I doing to improve overall well-being this month? And you focus on that. Then it becomes easier to be, okay, yeah, I know that this is boring, but for what I'm doing within this moment, within this block, within this month, it's very beneficial. So yeah, it's like this morning I got up and I was like, I'm not going to go for a swim and I don't feel really that strong right now. So I'll lift later. So I just went out for a walk just to get the light and the air and the fresh air and everything. And then I get home and my daughter's all chatty chatty and I can, I can deal. Right. You've got capacity. Yeah. (laughs) Whereas old me would be like, I'm going to go run some intervals and I'll come back and, you know, smash myself and that kind of stuff. And Yeah, it just doesn't work at this point in time. Yeah. So when you talk about moderate intensity, Mm -hmm. yeah, and you say, I'm going to do either the sprints or I'm going to do moderate, what do we define as moderate? Is this, um, is it zone two? Is it zone, I think staying away from zone three? I don't know. There's... Yeah. I know when we spoke last time, we kind of went, as soon as I mentioned zone two and all the work that Dr. Peter Atia was doing, telling us to do that kind of three, four times a week might be a bit much for women, but I'd love to hear yeah. what you found on this. Yeah. So uh, zone two, I get very frustrated because all the conversation out there around zone two is based on male bodies and male data. And when we look at the whole goal of zone two is to increase your aerobic capacity, increase oxidation, increase the transporters to pull lactate out of the system and be able to regenerate it. Um, And when we're looking specifically at the male body, yes, 
we want to do that. We want to have that low intensity, increase the aerobic function, increase mitochondria density, increase mitochondrial capacity, increase the MCT1 transporters that will pull lactate out of the system and regenerate it and, and make it into a usable uh, glucose or ATP. But when we're looking at women's bodies, by the nature of being women, we have way more slow twitch fiber. When we're looking comparably to men versus women, women have more slow twitch type one fibers, which are oxidative fibers. We already have greater mitochondrial density than men. We already have a greater a number of MCT1. Um, those are our lactate uh, transporters. And when we're doing zone two work, we're not actually stimulating anything that our body doesn't already have. When we look at glycolytic activity, so this is the type two fast twitch fibers, men have way more. So when they are going and they're doing exercise and they get into this glycolytic state and they produce a lot of lactate, they don't have as many transport mechanisms to get rid of that lactate. But by the nature of women, we have way more. So what we actually need to do is do more of that high intensity work to stimulate that glycolytic work. Because when we stimulate lactate production, not only are we stimulating the body's ability to produce and withstand lactate, but we also stimulate the body to upregulate those other receptors that pull lactate out of the system, which is what usually zone two work does. But when we're looking at that polarization and the muscle fiber typing that men versus women have, by the nature of being women, we don't have to do the zone two for all of the health and, and um, I guess, oxidative capacity reasons that all the conversation around the zone two is doing, because that's based on a body that has more glycolytic type two fibers and less type one. So women are really good in endurance because we have a higher percentage of those oxidative type one fibers. So I tell people, if you want to become more like women, then do zone two training. And men kind of laugh. Ha ha ha. I'm like, no, seriously, that's what you're doing. You're trying to create more oxidative type one fibers to be able to clear more lactate, have better mitochondrial health better oxidative capacity. But when you look at a woman versus a man, the same workload, women by far have more oxidative capacity, better mitochondrial respiration, better mitochondrial density, better oxidative status, just by the nature of having more of those slow twitch fibers and being a woman. And that is not in that any of that zone two conversation that is happening out there. When we see the likes of Huberman, we see the likes of Atia, all the other people that are talking about zone two, they're basing it on male bodies and male data and not looking at the sex difference in muscle fiber typing, mitochondrial density, mitochondrial respiration, mitochondrial function. They're not looking at any of that. Interesting. So when so when we're looking at them, if we if we focus just on this point for aerobic exercise for women mm-hmm. uh, across women who are cycling peri and then post menopause, is what you're saying they shouldn't be focusing on zone two, or is there a place for that in terms of just enhancing blood flow? For example, if you've been doing a lot of lifting and you want to kind of help get rid of kind of toxins and things and improve that, or is there not really any place for it? So when we look at recovery, sure. If we're looking at soul food, sure, but doing that whole three to four times a week, 45 plus minutes is not a good use of time for women's bodies, except when we get into later postmenopause. So we have early postmenopause, which is about the first five years after the onset of menopause. And we still have some estrogen receptors. We still have some stimulation for VEGF, which is, um, you know, your vascular compliance. But as we get further away from menopause at one point in time into late postmenopause, we need to look at getting some more oxidative capacity. So that's when zone two might come in handy. But we also still need to do that glycolytic work because we have less of those type two fibers. And when we're looking at what we want to do, we want to enhance what we don't have or what we might lose. 
So it's all about, okay, we know that women's bodies are better at long, slow stuff. So we need to maximize the power and the speed, regardless of where we are in our age. It's how you scope the training around that is very age or actually hormone profile specific. Interesting. Okay. And that's because when we've moved to that stage beyond that far beyond menopause, we're pretty much more like a man at that point Yeah, in terms of all the hormones dropped. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. But we still need to do that, that power and speed work. Absolutely. So, okay. So before we get into the power and speed, when you mentioned there about moderate, you weren't Mm -hmm. going to do any more than moderate. Mm -hmm. What would you classify as that if we were looking at zones? Yeah. Specifically in the zone, you're not supposed to be in. (laughs) three. That's what I was wondering. Yeah. And you're like, The kind of black hole, right? (laughs) Yeah. I was getting confused. I was like, okay. Yeah. Mm. And I will admit it. Because being a long-term endurance athlete, that's where you naturally fall. So that's where mm-hmm. like, I naturally fall into a running pace or a cycling pace for soul food. So that's why I really limit now how much time I go out for soul food. So I call it soul food because it's a time where you're just out and you're observing. You're not really thinking. It's not too hard. It's not too easy. And it's just about being out. And I know that I fall into that moderate intensity zone squarely where I should not be, which is why I put a limit on it. But, you know, women, by the nature of of wanting to get out for stress reduction, end up falling into that zone. So that's what I'm saying, putting a limit on it. It's not complete elimination because so many people fall into that. But when we're really looking at if we want to dial it in specifically, then stay out of that zone. But I'm trying to transfer my way out of it because I've gotten into the bad habit of being in it. So that's why I've really put a caveat and limit on the amount of time as I'm trying to get myself out of that and back into that polarized training. And this is just to clarify for people listening, this is the zone where, as you were saying, you go out for soul food, women who, for example, go out for a run most days Mm -hmm. and they feel really good. They might drop the kids to school, go for a run with the dogs, and then they're looking and going, why do I have this belly fat? Why is my body composition not where I want it to be? And this gets exacerbated during peri and then postmenopause. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. If we're limiting it then, yes. What, what is an acceptable amount that you think doesn't compromise body composition, assuming you're going to nail all the other bits we're about to go into? Yeah, I mean, um, I look at it as as time that you are really just kind of relaxing in the exercise. So if you're under a lot of high stress, it's really not the zone to be in, but people get into that. So if we limit it to, I don't know, 30 minutes the most twice a week in those kind of high stress, it's not going to be that detrimental. If we're looking at people who are just when you go out for a long run or a long ride or a big hike or something like that with friends on the weekend and you're doing it once a week, sweet, that's fine. It's just when we fall into doing it every other day or every day because that's just what we've gotten into, that's when we see so many things go wrong. And this would be a zone where you are mouth, you're having to mouth breathe now. You've yeah. kind of come out of that nasal breathing just yeah. for people yeah. listening. Yeah. So it's yeah. harder. So it's causing inflammation and things like that. Yeah. Raising cortisol. Yep. All the things that we all don't those want things. in perimenopause. Exactly. Okay. So moving on then, let's look at, why don't we do the hit and the sit that you speak of um, first? Yeah. I think in terms of getting that those sprints in, and then we can talk about how Women will structure that if they have a a regular menstrual cycle, if they're peri, and then post. Yeah. Do you want to start by explaining the difference between HIT and SIT? So HIT is just that general category of high-intensity interval training. And we put so many intervals in that category. But if we're specifically looking at sprint interval training, this is the top end, the very top end, where we are going 110% of our max. So we can't hold that pace for any longer than 30 seconds. So we're going full gas as hard as we can for 30 seconds and then full recovery. So it's not Tabata, which 20 seconds on, 20 seconds off. That is not what I mean by sprint interval training. I mean, you're going as hard as you can for 30 seconds or less. And then recovery might be three minutes, might be four minutes, but it's full, complete neuromuscular capacity that you're looking for so that the next interval you're going full gas again. So if someone's out for a walk, then they're just doing their normal kind of low intensity 
walk as a warm up, and then they might increase their pace or find some stairs and they're pushing really hard for 30 seconds. And then they slow right back down. Same thing with running really super easy, embarrassingly slow for the recovery. And then 30 seconds as hard as you can. And when people are first starting out, you might only be able to do four of those before form starts to fall. And that's when you call it. And also when we're talking about sprint interval training, it's not just walking and running. We're looking at all modes. So you could be on the rower. You could be in the gym doing box jumps for 30 seconds or less. You could be doing battle ropes for 30 seconds. You could be um, on your bike. You could do anything, but it's really the sprint part is that high, high intensity, full gas, RPE of nine or 10. Then we bring it down to high intensity interval training. Can I ask you very quickly on that before we go to hit? My understanding when we were talking about mitochondria is there's some research that shows that this type of training enhances mitochondrial health as well. So for people who are thinking about, oh, I need to do zone two for mitochondria, this is also going to hit it. Yes, because when we're looking at mitochondria and function, that is all about that high intensity glycolytic stuff that we're, women don't have a lot of. So then it causes an upregulation of the um, transport mechanisms that pull lactate out and enhance what the body's doing from an oxidative capacity. So this is what I mean. If we're doing that high intensity work, then naturally by producing that lactate and that high intensity um, metabolic waste products or metabolites, then it encourages the upregulation of the um, transport mechanisms that clear it out. And that's part of the mitochondrial function. So yes, it definitely helps with mitochondrial health, mitochondrial function, and the body's ability to be more metabolically flexible. Would you like to uncover the secrets of your metabolism and hit your weight goals in a really easy, scientifically driven manner? For over a year now, I've been using a smart little device called Lumen. And through a simple breath test, Lumen helps me optimize my fasting period. It tells me the best time to eat carbs, how to fuel my workouts, tracks how stress and sleep affect my metabolism, and gives me daily personalized meal plans. Lumen is the first device to hack your metabolism and reveal your lifestyle and diet's true impact on your health and ability to lose weight and it can help you to enhance fat burn lose weight and boost your energy naturally and lumen is giving listeners of this podcast 90 dollars off all you need to do is head over to angelafoster.me forward slash lumen and enter code angela90 at checkout to save 90 dollars you can finally take charge of your metabolism in 2024 with this exclusive discount. Simply head over to angelafoster.me forward slash lumen. That's A-N-G-E-L-A-F-O-S-T-E-R dot M-E forward slash L-U-M-E-N and enter code Angela90 at checkout. Now let's get back to the show. Yeah, so hit is a little bit less of the intensity and a longer interval. So now we're looking at 80 to 90% of our max. So we're looking at a seven to eight on the RPE scale and it's one to four minutes for your interval. So if it's one minute, of course, it's going to be closer to that 90%. If it's four minutes, it's going to be closer to that 80%. And then the recovery is variable. So if we're looking at um, someone who's doing endurance work and they're trying to increase their VO2 max, then it would be a four minute effort right at that 80%. And then you drop it down to 50% for your recovery for about three minutes. If it's looking at someone who's like in a Metcon class or something like that, then you really have to be careful We'll take like Orange Theory or F45, for example, where they have the different stations. You have to be very conscious that you want to push really hard for whatever station you're in, but then the next station might be full recovery. So if we're looking at resistance training and we're using that as our metabolic stimulus, then one station is going to be really hard and fast. And the next one is just going to be technique because we need to have that little bit of that polarization within the class or within the lifting so that you can have one to four minutes of that 80 to 90% 
And then the recovery is around that 50%. But it's like I, I said, haven't seen many classes like that. I know. That's why you have so, to. Yeah. I know. That's why you have to take ownership. I tell people you are paying to go to these classes. You are paying to get a workout. So make it work for your body. So that's why, like, I see all these people who are in Orange Theory and they love it. And that's great. I don't want to discourage people from exercising at all. But when you look at the structure of, of one of the classes where you have intervals on the treadmill and then you have the weight station, like if you are doing the interval part, then you've got to make sure that those intervals work for you and for your body. So if they're saying, 30 seconds as hard as you can. And then it's 30 seconds on 30 seconds off. I'm like, no, no, no. 30 seconds on one minute off, then 30 seconds on then one minute off, preferably longer. But with the structure of the class, you have to make sure that one minute you're dropping everything. So even if you're straddling the treadmill and really standing there and dropping everything, make it work for your body. Then when you get into the um, resistance training, component of the class where they're making you change stations all the time. One station, like I said, one station really working hard. Then the next station, you're just doing technique in that movement to really recover. So then the next station you go to, you can work it hard. So it's taking the idea that here they've set all this up for me and they have the structure of the class, but I'm modifying it for my body for myself in this point in time, because those classes are not structured for women who are perimenopause or later. So these are more appropriate, are they, for women who are still cycling, like normal and haven't hit perimenopause yet? Yes. But not in the luteal phase. Right, right. So same within the luteal phase. When you're feeling a bit flat, you're like, okay, I feel really awful. I should be deloading. I still want to go. Then again, you make the class work for you. Don't bash yourself up all the time just because you're in a class. And I know it's hard because you're surrounded by a whole bunch of people who all want to go hard and gung-ho, but just take that pause and be like, what is the best thing for my body? What is the best way to get to where I want to be from a fitness standpoint? And you have to really hold your ground and make that class work for you. And it's the same like within CrossFit as well, where you have a strength component and you have a conditioning component. If you go in with the mindset of today, I want to focus on the heavy lifting component because that's what my body wants. Then in, in the lifting component, you're really working on technique and lifting. And then in the Metcon, you're not doing the prescriptive weights. You're not doing the high end stuff. You're working on technique and you're going through the Metcon more as movement not as trying to hit that high intensity work and when you're looking at the luteal phase and you're looking at exercise I don't want to kind of divert onto fasting at this point because I definitely want to stay with exercise but Mindy Pals has a new a relatively new book on she came in the show and was talking about different phases of the menstrual cycle and this power phase post ovulation that gives you that boost where you're more resilient I'm curious here when we're looking at exercise uh, and we know that we can kind of often when we'll be able to hit PBs and things approaching ovulation, when, when should someone be dialing stuff down a little bit in terms of that intensity on exercise and is this power phase a thing for exercise? Um, yeah, so when we're looking at it and from a scientific and physiological perspective, there isn't a generalization that we can make. We have to have everyone track their own cycle because we know now that around ovulation, some women have really severe ovulatory pain and they feel awful. And then afterwards for a couple of days, they are still very flat. And there are other women who can like coast through it. From a physiological perspective, we see so many inherent changes that happen around ovulation our immune system becomes more pro-inflammatory. We have a harder time accessing carbohydrate. We're having a change in our core temperature. So when we're looking at all of this, we have to be very careful in describing things as a power phase or not. It's very individual. Um, and that's part of like why we updated Roar as well, because as we're getting more and more into the qualitative work 
that's happening around the menstrual cycle and looking more at the biological and sociological stuff that's coming out around the menstrual cycle, we realize that almost all the research that's being pushed out there around the menstrual cycle is a very narrow view on white eumenorrheic women. So we want to expand that to encompass everybody. And there isn't any real generalization that we can put in. So we say from a physiological standpoint, we see that follicular phase all the way through ovulation from an immune perspective and from a metabolic perspective, we're really, really resilient to stress because that's from that biological perspective. The body wants to be very strong, doesn't want to get sick. We're really good at fighting pathogens. And then around ovulation, we have to have a switch in our immune system. We have to have a switch in the way that the body is perceiving things coming in and how we are fueling because we don't want the body to attack a fertilized egg. We also don't want a fertilized egg to be implanted into tissue that is not robust with with glycogen for, for fuel. So as we see those changes occurring, that's where we can say, okay, from that physiological perspective, these are the things we have to be aware of. But from a bio um, sociological perspective, we have to bring in that lived experience. That's why women have to track their own cycles to understand what their lived experience is to find their own power phase and work within what they're doing within their own hormone profile. And if you're feeling good, like I feel pretty good pretty much all the time, like yeah. I think that's quite lucky. Is that okay to just continue to train? Like, yeah. is there a reason? I mean, I, I there are a few days that I think, yeah, I, I notice I need to kind of dial this back and I probably don't do that sprint interval training late, but you know, do you need to, if you're feeling good, can you go with how you feel and make sure you're recovering well and you're having carbohydrates and protein to compensate? Yes, absolutely. It's just having the eye to where you are in your menstrual cycle to know that when you're in the luteal phase, this is where you need to have more carbohydrate available because of a physiological change that's happening where estrogen is not allowing the body to really tap into carbohydrate. It's trying to save it because progesterone is trying to take everything and put it into the endometrial lining. So that's when you are wanting to eat more carbohydrate in and around your training so that you have available fuel for hitting any kind of intensities or getting you through your workout without really jacking up cortisol and increasing undue inflammation. Protein across the board because it's so beneficial for everything from muscle protein synthesis, body composition change, mood, neurotransmitters. And when you're in the high hormone phase or the luteal phase, you need around 12% more protein. So yes, having an eye to what you're eating to support the phase. But if you feel fantastic, go for it. Go for it. Okay. Um, in terms of HIT and this sprint interval training, how much should we be doing like for, for each phase that we're talking about in terms of women cycling, women, perimenopause, and then late post because I'm quitting it sounds like what we're saying here when we, when we talk about perimenopause sounds like from what we're saying is we're kind of putting women that are in peri together with women who've crossed menopause in the last five years they seem to be yep. in a category together would that be fair yes yes okay and then after five years after we're looking at kind of that post post menopause exactly and the reason for that is as we go through perimenopause and have changes in our ratios of our estrogen and progesterone we're also having changes in our receptors they're becoming either less sensitive or more sensitive to the hormones we also have changes in the gut microbiome because if we're having less progesterone then we have less of the gut bugs that actually deconjugate progesterone derivatives and throw it back out um, as we get into early postmenopause because we still have some of the receptors and we're still undergoing some of those changes with the flat line of the hormones, we see that the first five years after that onset of menopause, we still benefit from some of the same things we're doing in perimenopause. But when we get into that late postmenopause, those receptors are gone. So we really have to look at what kind of external stress can we do to stimulate change in the body. So we see a higher dose needed for sprint interval training. We see a higher dose needed for strength training. So when we get back to how many days a week should we be doing stuff, when we are in early perimenopause, we're looking at two to three sprint 
or hit sessions a week, at least three times a week resistance training. And then you can fill it in with a little bit of soul food. When we get into later perimenopause, we're looking at three to four times of that sprint hit stuff, preferably more of the sprint, less of the hit, and three times a week resistance training. And you're really minimizing any of that uh, moderate intensity stuff to maybe one time a week or one time every 10 days. Same with early postmenopause. When we get into late postmenopause, this is where we have to look at maybe four sprint interval sessions a week, just very short ones. You're not extending it out at all. So you're doing maybe three or four sprints four times a week. And the resistance training, we're looking at four times a week as well. And it's that dose response. We need more doses of less volume when we get into that later postmenopause. And everyone's like, but that's old. That's like, you know, people who are really old. How do you expect them to do plyo work and sprint work and resistance training? It's like, this is why we are building as we're getting in there so that we can increase the intensity and drop the volume because we are still maintaining joint stability. We're maintaining our bones. We're maintaining our lean mass, there's no way I would tell someone who is 65 plus that all of a sudden they have to do four days of sprint training with some plyometrics and resistance training because it's just not going to happen. That's why you want to train up for that. That's why we start in perimenopause and work our way through. And work our way through. And so the plyo is on top. So by plyometric training, you're talking about things like jump box, jump rope. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, that can work as a sprint session. So if we're looking at box jumps and plyometric work, that is really high intensity work. So if you're doing 10 or if you're doing 30 seconds of box jumps, that's plyometric and sprint training. So I think this is where we get a misconception of sprint means I have to be running sprints or I have to be cycling sprints. No, it's high intensity, nine or nine to 10 on RPE for 30 seconds or less. That's what I mean. It can be box jumps. It can be battle ropes. It can be, yeah. Yeah. Anything that's really high intensity can also work as plyometric work. So it's not adding. So you don't have to leave the floor for you personally. Like battle ropes works as plyo. Mm -hmm. It's more about the force. It's the force. Yes. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Super helpful. Yeah. Um, How would you then periodize that across a year? Are you saying that you follow this type of program? for kind of 12 months of the year? Or would you take blocks and go, right, I'm going to focus more on that hit and kind of VO2 max development for a bit. And then I'm going to go through another period of say six week block where I'm going to do much more of the sprint interval. And we can come onto resistance in a moment. Would you do it like that with kind of deloads? Absolutely. Yeah. It's the same as any kind of periodized program. We're looking at microcycles, macrocycles. We can even work around school holidays. Like I have a lot of women who are like, oh my gosh, my kids are off for two weeks. What do I do? I'm like, well, then we look at that as like your deload mobility work. And before that, we're putting in some good six week or seven week block of, of really solid training. But what do we want to work on? If it's in the middle of winter, it's not like you're going to want to go outside and do VO2 work. So maybe we're doing some more heavy resistance training and following up with some plyometric work. Um, And then when the weather starts to get better, and you want to be outside more then that's when we can focus on VO2 work because you want to be outside. So there's definitely ways of working around the calendar and life. And it's not like I have to do this for 12 months. It's definitely following a periodized model. Periodized training. And I think when we last spoke, you were saying that women who were post-menopause kind of often needed to do two weeks intensity and then one week where they lessened off and then two weeks in those sort of blocks. Is that? Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's still the same. Yeah. and within and that's that, women who are post postmenopause. This is five years post, or no, nope, no. Nope. This is where we're looking at late perimenopause into early and late postmenopause, because we look at recovery, we look at um, the full aspect of how are we working with mobility, tendons, ligaments, joints, that kind of stuff. So we have two weeks of focused training and then one week of full recovery. And in that recovery week, this is your mobility. It could be your long, slow, like on a Wednesday, going out for some soul food stuff. Um, But we have two weeks of focus and one week of that full recovery. And then we can also look at block focusing those two weeks too. So maybe you have three... um, 
three blocks of three weeks that you want to work just on VO2 work. So in the two weeks on, it's focusing on VO2 and then the deload and then another VO2 and then a deload, then another VO2 and then a deload. Then you change your focus. You're like, okay, now we'll work on top end stuff. So then you have two weeks of sprint stuff and then a deload, two weeks of sprint stuff and a deload. So you can do your periodization within those two weeks on one week off model too. Awesome. Let's talk about resistance then and how you might, how you should periodize that. Uh, resistance, I think I've heard you talk about being the bedrock. So it sounds like that yes. should always be there. It should always be there. When we are uh, pre-menopausal, so we're naturally cycling, we're seeing that power-based stuff still works really well because again, we don't have as much of that glycolytic type two stuff. Um, but you can still get away with doing higher reps. Um, when we are getting into perimenopause and we really start to lose lean mass and strength, this is where that power-based training is essential. So you want to keep the stimulus of muscle contraction, strong muscle contraction, and stimulus for lean mass development. We get into postmenopause, so early postmenopause, we rapidly lose lean mass. So you really have to focus on getting that power-based stuff, strong strength work, because not only does that help build lean mass from a hypertrophy point of view, but it also really helps the central nervous system. We get into later postmenopause, and this is where you can dial up the hypertrophy type work. You still want to keep some of the strength stuff. So now we're looking at more around eight reps instead of the four to six or three to five. So you're just eking it out to have a couple of more volume intensity sessions when you're in that later postmenopause to keep the stimulus of lean mass development. So one thing I've noticed here when I look at it is what seems to work best for me when I look at body composition and what I'm achieving is if I basically take the compound lifts like the deadlifts, the squats, shoulder press, things like that, and make those like low reps and very, very heavy. Mm. So like three to five reps. But then I, if I do accessory moves for the rest of the workout, so if I pick one main lift and go with that on low and do kind of five, six sets of those, and then I do accessory moves that have, say, more of that eight to 12 rep range, I seem to get uh, get stronger and yeah. also get more definition. Yep. Is that? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So Perfect. that's amazing. Um, and how would you periodize that then across uh, across in those training blocks? Um, so I would look at it as a six week focus. Uh, so if you're doing two weeks on one week off, or you're doing three weeks on one week off or whatever it is, you have a six week focus of maybe deadlift or all posterior chain. And so that's where you're really focusing on like pyramid hip thrusts, deadlifts, single leg stuff, you know, really working posterior chain, heavier stuff. And then you can go into a six week block of squat focus. So it's not really changing rep range, but it's changing in that rep range and sets. What am I doing? Am I doing pyramid? Am I doing cluster sets? So it's, and then also, is it a posterior chain focus? Is it an overhead focus? Is it push pull? I mean, some people who are more into bodybuilding type stuff, they might be doing uh, squats on a Monday, bench on a Wednesday, deadlifts on a Thursday or something like that. And you still can do that, but then you're like, okay, well, it, I want to focus on just the pure strength and power development. So you might warm up with some plyometrics and then get into the three to five rep range just for squats on a Monday and then do the same thing on Wednesday and then do the same thing on a Thursday. But if you're not and you're looking for a lifestyle like hypertrophy definition, then you can look at it as um, four times a week and you might just focus on different squat movements those four times a week. And then two weeks later, you change it up to deadlift movements. And two weeks later, it's overhead. But I'm not saying ignore the other stuff during those two weeks. Might be squat focus and then you're accessorizing with um, crock rows and, uh, you know, push-ups and that kind of stuff. So you're still keeping the upper body stimulus, but the strength and power focus is that focus. Hmm. And that's a really good way, isn't it? Because it keeps it really interesting for people across the year. Yeah. I think people get get bored bored yes yeah exactly yeah so that's re that's really helpful thank you mm -hmm. um let's talk about a little bit about i want to just briefly touch on nutrition yeah and also supplementation i've heard yeah. you be 
quite open about supplements and women and what's tested and, and what isn't. And I think this is where so many women are confused and we're hit with supplement after supplement after supplement, right? That we should be taking. And this is the thing that's going to make you live to 120 and beyond and, and these things. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts around that? I know there's some very specific um kind of more athlete things that um that you speak about and write about on your blog that that people can read about and how they may not work for women but when we think about um broadly speaking um what are the kind of key things like magnesium for example or omega-3 I know you talk a lot about creatine mm-hmm. um what, what are the things we need to think about and that's really proven by science for as helpful for women um, so black currant juice is really powerful for anti-inflammatory and antioxidative properties. So women who have bad PMS or they have a lot of problems with inflammation, supplementing with black currant juice concentrate is really more of a real food way. It's, it's considered a supplement, but when you're looking at all the supplements that are out there, a juice concentrate is closer to the real food spectrum than a powder. So we're looking at black currant juice concentrate as a means of really enhancing total recovery, as well as dampening PMS or PPMD symptoms. So people who really suffer from um, bloating, cramping, mood change, because uh, the uh, polyphenols and and other compounds within the black currant juice really work. Um, There's a brand, but I think this is powder. Is it Currens? I took that for a bit. Uh, Currens with a Z. I think they're in New Zealand, um, which is a company. Which is yeah, popular. yeah. Though they and Arepa just got pulled up by the um, New Zealand kind of consumer watch because of some of the claims that they were making. So okay, you can just find any kind of black currant juice that black you're currant juice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just a small amount. How much are we talking yeah. about here? So maybe 20 mil, not too much. Yeah, small amount. Concentrated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Same thing with chart cherry juice. They both do the same. It's There's a little bit more um, evidence for the anti-inflammatory responses from the black currant than there is from the chart cherry. Uh, When we're talking a creatine, of course, um, omega-3s and vitamin D. Vitamin D is super, super important. I can't stress how important it is, especially when we live in places that are far away from the equator and we have lots of time of rain and dark winters and our uh, vitamin D status drops. Like it. Yeah, I know. Like we <laughs> supposedly are in spring, but yeah, it's not very It's not spring. looking that way. Um, so vitamin D is associated, of course, with mood, and we see boosts in mood, keeping people out of deep depression. It's associated with improved immunity. It's associated with improved iron status, improved muscle, muscle function. Um, there's so many things about vitamin D that are so important, and the research is still emerging from gut function, brain health, immunity, those kinds of things that everyone wants for longevity and health. Um, and I feel like it's underrated where people are like, oh yeah, I get my 400 international units and that's doesn't even touch, touch it. You have to look at, you know, 2000 international units. And if you haven't gotten your blood tested to see what your vitamin D status, don't really start slamming back more than 2000 international units. And I tell people every other day, because uh, that's going to boost your levels. And if you start feeling better and you're like, oh, yeah, there's something here, then you know, really try to get on top of it, get your blood tested, see where you are, see if you need to dose a little bit higher. Um, especially as you guys go into winter, it's so important to really stay on top of that vitamin D. Mm. So important. I think so many people are deficient in that, aren't they? And as you say, yeah. it affects mood and many people here suffer with seasonal adjustment disorder. And I, th- I think it's, it's pretty brutal. You know, we're getting to the point in a few weeks, it will be dark until eight o'clock in the morning and it'll be yep. getting dark at kind of three thirty, four o'clock. And yep. it's just, Yeah. That's us down here, but oh, it's just, the same for you. Is yeah, it? in our winter, yeah, we have darkness. Um, so the further south you go, the darker it stays. When I was down in Dunedin, which is you know closer to Antarctica, it wouldn't get light till eight thirty in the morning, and it would start to get dark at like three in the afternoon. I'm up further on the North Island, but in the middle of winter, it's still dark at seven thirty eight, and it starts getting dark at four. And the days are gray and gloomy. 
So yes, very similar weather. Yeah. Drizzle. Yes. I was just in Sri Lanka last week and it was so, because it's so close to the equator, it was amazing. You know, yeah. sunrise, sunset, such a regular time of kind yep. of 6.30, 6.30. Every day was beautiful sunshine and then it would rain in the evening, big thunderstorms. Everything was lush green. The fruit just tasted incredible. Do you know what I mean? Like the yes. sweetness. Yes. And then I came back to the UK and I was like, oh, the crops uh, have changed and it's uh, all a bit different now. I know. I know. Yeah. I feel your pain. I feel your pain. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's not good. Um, the other thing I want to speak about is on the whey protein and creatine, right? Yeah. So I found personally creatine, um, I love it in terms of like, I noticed the neurological benefits and things when I'm taking it for any length of time, I do tend to retain more water. Is this a common thing? I've just correlated it with that. And if I drop back for a bit, that seems to go. Yeah. Uh, so creatine does, um, increase the amount of water that's in your muscles. Because as it's being pulled in, it has to be in a fluid and it does store more water. So when we look at um, how much creatine we're taking and the type of creatine that we're using, this is where we can can really kind of manipulate to limit that. If we're using instantized creatine, which is the Crea Pure, and we're looking at no more than three grams, then it really dampens that water retention. Because then it's okay. just sucked into the muscle and it's not having to be like pulled in with water and carbohydrate. Um, so that's the key points is instantized creapure is the, the type of creatine monohydrate that's in all the higher profile brands. And that's what you're looking for. Um, when you start dosing a bit more, you're doing five or six grams, and that's when you start to see some of the side effects. Mm, that's what I noticed. Yeah. And I think sometimes you, you can be a bit liberal, right? You put it in a shake and you'll think it'll be all right. And then you're like, and I could see it on like in body scans and things, just the yeah. water, just, yeah. 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 It doesn't give a good look either. <laughs> no, no. You feel all like stay puff marshmallowy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So kind of two and a half, three grams for women is sort of optimal. Yes. Yes. And it takes, yeah. And it takes about three weeks to fully saturate. So if you're like, I don't feel any different, what's going on, give yourself three weeks and then you'll really start to feel the difference because it does take time to accumulate within the muscle and the tissues. Mm. And whey protein. This is a funny one for me Yeah, because I'm convinced that certain types of whey protein, and this is bizarre because it seems to be the higher quality I go. Mm-hmm. It, it leads to acne yeah. and, and I haven't worked out why. And I don't know whether it's something else that just happened to be at that time, but I was trying out a grass fed organic whey protein isolate. I've done it twice. Mm-hmm. Every time I have it, I'll get cystic acne. Oh, that's very Is strange. That that's unusual. Um, it's very unusual. I ha- yeah. I haven't been able to find anything that tells me that that should be happening. Yeah. I wonder if it's the brand, if there's a, a flow agent that they use that you have a reaction to. Because, you know, Maybe. if it's instantized and even though it's it's really high quality, as you're describing, they have to have some kind of flow agent so that it doesn't all clump together. So it could be that. If you look at changing brands, perhaps, maybe that yeah, will help. When I change brands, absolutely, I'm fine with, with Isolate. There you go. Yeah. Interesting. I just wondered whether that was a thing you found. Um so to round up then, women, just lastly, hormone therapy, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't replace the need to do all, I just want to qualify this, right, Correct. to do all of the work that we're talking about. Because I right. think many women on social are like, I don't understand what's going on. My doctor's giving me hormones. And why is it? My body comp's not changing. I don't feel that great still. Um, yes, can you yes. clarify that? Clear it up. Absolutely. So menopause hormone therapy is a tool on the table for getting through all of this. Notice I didn't say hormone replacement therapy. I'm talking about the same stuff, but we want to reframe it and say menopause hormone therapy because we are not replacing our hormones to the level that they were when we were premenopausal. We are looking at using a lower dose to mitigate symptoms and some of the, you know, really impactful issues that happen with menopause. So this is our mood. This is our sleep. This is our vasomotor symptoms. This is our bone density, but it does not replace the lifestyle changes you have to make in order to get body composition change and keep progressing from a fitness and health standpoint. And I think that is the conversation that is not being had where you see all these people are like, take 
hormone replacement therapy and it's magic. It's like, no, it's not because it doesn't, it's not, again, we're not replacing our hormones. We are providing enough to slow the rate of change and get us through this transition. But we are not looking at something that our body is recognizing as our own natural therapies or sorry, our own natural hormones. And we also have to remember the other changes that are happening in perimenopause, such as a change in our receptor sensitivity and density of both estrogen and progesterone and the change in our gut microbiome because of the second pass that we have with our natural hormones where our hormones are released and then some of them are actually brought to the liver they're conjugated or they're bound to sex hormone binding globulin. Then they're shot into the intestines with bile. And that's where our gut bugs deconjugate and toss them back, back out into the system. With hormone therapy, we don't have that second pass. So we are having a reduction in the diversity in our gut microbiome, which is unfortunately an air towards more obesogenic type phyla. So you have to put in the work of exercise and nutrition changes to actually see the progression of better body composition, better bone health, better lean mass, and better sleep and all the other things. So it's a tool on the table and you can use that tool and that's great. It's really effective for some women, but other women, they don't need it because they can use other things on that table that's gonna get them through and keep benefiting their body as they get through peri, early post into late post menopause. Awesome, and with women, if they're following the protocols that we've spoken about today, they should be able to tolerate, presumably, a, a fair amount of carbohydrates, which supports that recovery, right? I know you talk about, I think, 0.8 to, no, let me, I can do it in pounds, one gram per pound of body weight in terms of protein, I think is kind of broadly optimal. Um, yeah. For active women, they can match that, right, in terms of the amount of carbohydrates, because I think many women actually really, really restricting their carbs as well. Yes, and it's unfortunate because our bodies need carb. Um, one, we fuel differently than men, so we go through blood sugar a lot faster. And so we need that carbohydrate to keep the brain going. Yeah, there's nutrition coming in. We can accommodate for this stress. And remember when we are in peri, especially late perimenopause, our body is under a lot of stress. We are in a sympathetic drive and we need carbohydrate to help mitigate and counter some of that stress. Um, and yeah, we see all of these restrictive diets out there that's all about restrict carbohydrate. And you do want to restrict your simple carbs, right? But that's because they're ultra processed. But you're you're looking at uh, your fruit and veg, super, super beneficial for gut microbiome. We're looking at um, sprouted grain breads. We're looking at fermented foods. We're looking at um, all of our grains. All of these are really essential for our gut microbiome. And we need them to keep that diversity as well as to keep the brain happy to say, yeah, great. There's some fuel coming in. Mm, I noticed I feel better on that. Um, I think we have covered so much and I'm so grateful for your time. What I will say is I'm a huge fan of your work and super grateful to you. And you have, I think I've bought every single one of your courses. I think I pretty much have every micro learning. And I would say to anyone listening to this, Stacey has the most incredible courses on her website. Um, and the micro learning is a relatively speaking new edition, right? Is it last sort of 12, 18 months maybe, which I yeah. think gives yeah. people bite-sized content, which is amazing. Um, and it goes into things we haven't had time to cover today. I think you have something on collagen there, on iron. There's, there's, there's a ton. Yeah. And um, more to come. More to come. And more to come with yeah. the new book and everything. So where can people come and connect with you, Stacey? Please share. Um, so our website is Dr. Stacey Sims, and it's D-R-S-T-A-C-Y-S-I-M-S at, uh, you know, just.com. And then it's the same thing on Instagram and Facebook. You still use Facebook, Dr. Stacey Sims. Uh, you can sign up for our newsletter and get it every two weeks. It has a blog that kind of does a deep dive on some of the current topics, um, gives you an insight into some of our courses that we're coming up. We're releasing a youth course towards the end of the year. We're looking at doing retreats next year. So there's lots of things to, to keep in mind awesome. and keep updated. Yeah. Amazing. So, Are these yeah. going to be in the Southern Hemisphere, these retreats? Or? Uh, not all of them, no. So no? stay tuned. Correct. Stay, stay tuned. <laughs>
thank yes. you again You're for welcome. coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been fun. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more about how you can sync your training with your menstrual cycle or how you can optimize specifically for that transition between peri and postmenopause, then check out my other two episodes with Dr. Stacey Sims. They are episode numbers 94 and 185. I hope today's episode inspired you on your journey to vibrant health and high performance. Make sure you check out the show notes for a summary of all the important links to everything we talked about. And if you enjoyed this episode, hit the follow button and share it with a friend on social media or leave a review over on Apple Podcasts. Remember, achieving high performance health is about getting 1% better each day. So think about one thing you learned from today's episode and start implementing it today. Share with me what you've learned on social media over at Angela S. Foster. I love hearing from you and connecting with you. Have a beautiful day and always remember you are worthy of your dreams. Mm -hmm.